Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 44, Who and What We Are. Welcome to History Against the Grain. We are back uh, to talk about a number of things, but first, uh, I am Josh, and with me as always is my intrepid co-host, Chris. <laughs> What's on your mind, Chris? Uh, blood sugar, actually. You know, we are, <laughs> we are recording earlier than our normal time today. And I just realized as we uh, hit the go button uh, to begin the episode uh, that my uh, my blood sugar is doing its normal um, kind of early AM thing. So yeah. look out, everybody, <laughs> well, <laughs> at what's and, coming and this, at you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, as the editor, I will uh, I'll edit out any chewing sounds from from the record. I promise. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, a lot going on clearly in the news. Uh, we have a, a, a remarkable guest uh, today, Gina Tam. Yeah, I can't uh, wait to get to that. Yeah, whose whose book, uh, Dialect and, and Nationalism in China, uh, is so new, in fact, that the uh, the copy that the publisher sent us is actually hardback. Yeah. I haven't bought a, a hardback book in, I don't know, long time. So... Yeah, fresh off the press. And we're going to be talking to Gina uh, later on. In fact, uh, I think it was our conversation with her, right, Josh, that inspired, you know, a whole bunch of other ideas uh, for our, uh, you know, our podcast today, including our little opening segment here and the title of the podcast, Who and What We Are. Yeah, it's it's a great example of how, you know, we've, we've talked about this before, but, um, and we actually talked about this in the, in the interview itself. It's so important to to read and, and be open to, um, you know, kind of looking at history beyond your, your specific field or, or what you think your interest is, because there's always going to be something, you know, in the, in the best books, there's always going to be something that's so useful. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to help you better understand whatever it is your field is, whatever your area is. Um, you understand that better as you look at societies, you look at histories, you look at time periods, maybe you're less familiar with, um, because it, it can be inspiring in its own right. Uh, and I think that that you know this is another example. We've had many examples of this on the on the podcast, but another example where, you know, we're reading this book about about language, and, uh, dialect, and nationalism in China, and there's a million things that are going to jump out of that uh, to us, both you know as it relates to China, but also as it relates to, in your case, you know, looking at Atlantic history. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my case, looking at the larger world history. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's just always so inspiring to read to read books like this one. Um, and, and realize how connected history is, really, mm-hmm. um, how difficult it is. And we're going to talk more about this to put things in their, their little spot and say, no, no, that's only for these people. It's only for these sets of ideas. Um, because, you know, if you open yourself up to these broader things, it's, uh, it's, it's revelatory, I think. It is absolutely revelatory. And, you know, I found myself on the one hand wanting, you know, to drill down into, um, you know, this, this subject of language and, and modern China and understand it on its own terms. But I, I'd be lying, you know, if I didn't admit that I also felt myself taking many of her, you know, sort of uh, 
you know, concepts and, and you know, anal analytical angles into this subject and applying them to all kinds of other areas, you know, of, yeah. of, of the modern age and, uh, right. and the lived experience of the modern age. And as you and I have been talking, you know, ultimately, I think that's that's what we want, you know, with these new histories that we're suggesting this year, you know, these new approaches uh, to telling these stories about the past that we're looking for those sort of narrative strategies that get us outside our borders, you know, that, that get us outside those familiar tropes, uh, particularly those which are produced for us, you know, by mm -hmm. the very systems of, of power that, that, you know, have a vested interest in, in how the story is told. And, and so whether it's language in China or any number of other things we might discuss and, and have discussed, it's, it's that, you know, continued search for the lived experience, you know, at ground level, you know, before it gets what? Before it gets produced, before it gets repackaged, recycled, you know, and 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 sort of laid at our feet as something that, you know, at least claims to be authentic, you know, or patriotic or, or something right. of that nature. So yeah, clearly uh, this is this is a book that inspires a, a, a great big fun conversation. Yeah, I, I happened to find this uh, this review. Well, I didn't happen to find it. It was on her website, but uh, Gina Tam had had a review in the uh, LA Review of Books of um, uh, it doesn't matter what what book it was at this moment. But um, she she writes in that review when one group deems themselves the sole arbiters of history, they often rob particular groups of their own voices, past and present, and that that's such a, a great encapsulation of of you know what we try to do on the, this podcast is kind of get outside those arbors of history. And in the context of China, you know, I think for most Americans, they'd see China as something somehow radically different than, than the United States, because you do have this, uh, you know, this, this, uh, the PRC, they have the communist party, you know, and the idea is they're imposing their will and imposing their ideas upon their population. They certainly are, but you know, we also have to recognize how much that happens even within the United States. Right, that there are arbiters of history, there are arbiters of the of these stories, and while the conversation might be larger, one of the things we've we've seen is is how limited the conversation still is because it still fits within these broad assumptions about the past, uh, these ideas of what the United States is and has been, uh, ideas of progress, whatever those assumptions are, they're still still so infused in so much of our popular understandings of of history, um, and so. Uh, you have an example, actually, of, of those arbiters of history kind of expressing uh, these these popular views of the past. I sure do. But let's face it, you're being modest because it was a few weeks ago as I was sitting <laughs> in a moment of, of calm repose that uh, I received a text from you uh, mm -hmm. with a, uh, a link to a, a speech, a video of a speech. Uh, by uh, former Pennsylvania U.S. Senator Rick Santorum. And so my calm repose, as, I, as I'm sure you may have intended, uh, came <laughs> crashing down around me as I listened to yet another example of what we'll call American Gothic history. Um, yeah, this was yeah. I, I got to keep you on edge. You're like a boxer. I'm like your trainer. I got to keep you on edge. If you get too relaxed, then I, I can't get the fire out of you. So yeah, I just like to send these little these little things to you every once in a while. You, you got to stay hungry, right? Yeah, and, exactly, uh, exactly. All right. So here's Rick Santorum 
well-known, you know, right-wing ideologue and, you know, um, crypto-fascist uh, hustler of American history, uh, speaking to a group called the Young America's Foundation, standing up for faith and freedom. So uh, we could end the conversation right there, I guess. But I'll go on. I think we, we, didn't we get invited to speak to them next, <laughs> the next conference? No? Uh, they're one of our sponsors, I think, here on History Against the Grain. So <laughs> Santorum, uh, on this video you sent me, was making the case that America was settled by people who, quote, were coming to practice their faith. Now, uh, close quote. Santorum saw himself and his audience, in other words, as being the heirs of that tradition of faith. Now, you know, look, uh, the historian in me wants to jump in right away, you know, because uh, first let me say, and this is one of my, you know, well-worn teacher memes, and I'm sure you have your own journal full of them, that yes. you can pull these out when you need to in class. You know, one of mine is that the last thing people want, the last person people want who are sitting around talking about the way things used to be, the last mm. person they want around is a historian, right? Right. And so when Rick Santorum says that they are heirs to this tradition of people coming to practice their faith, you know, as, as a, you know, one, one, <laughs> one of my interests used to be the history of religion in America. So I, I'm unfortunately burdened with all this strange knowledge about American religious history. And one of them is that, you know, the, the people he's talking about, presumably the sort of founding religionists of America, you know, were strict Calvinist Protestants. Rick Santorum is a kind of bug-eyed Bible belt, modern evangelical. And at least on the Christian spectrum, however parochial it might seem, on the Christian spectrum, there's a wide range of difference between those two. And yet it's easy for Rick to imagine that those Christians and his young America Christians are this cut from the self-same Christian cloth. So that that's huge, hugely problematic. But that's not even the worst part, Josh. Right? Can you hear the blood sugar doing its thing? <laughs> yeah, I can, yeah. <laughs> Santorum says, quote, we birthed a nation from nothing. Uh, we birthed a nation from nothing. I mean, he says there was nothing here. I mean, yes, we have Native Americans, but candidly, there isn't much Native American culture in American culture, close quote. I mean, that's that's like the most standard. It, it, it did it did elicit a response, right? When he, when he made this speech, there was, you know, the usual mm -hmm. Twitter mm -hmm. snark and that kind of thing. But it... That it's very much within a tradition, right? Isn't yes. that the, the George Bancroft line? Is that uh, the uh, North America was empty of mankind in its works? Yes. Uh, when when Europeans first arrived, yes. so it, that, there's a long tradition of that kind of erasure um, that he he's tapping into. I, I think it suggests maybe we've come a little d distance that there was pushback against this, but um, but it that didn't come out of nowhere. That was, you know, that's the arbiters of history that had taught him um, a way of thinking about about that American past, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, there's so much going on in it that, that, that as you say, reflects a kind of, you know, well-worn, um, you know, n narrative conceit, really, I guess, mm -hmm. of, of the American past. You know, the, the collective we, for example. Uh, 
You know, Rick Rick imagines himself right there with Miles Standish, I guess, at Plymouth mm-hmm. Rock or something, you know, that, that there's an unbroken line, in other words, uh, you know, connecting them over 400 years time and that they're perfectly simpatico, you know, in that understanding, um, right. which, you know, is, of course, egregiously ahistoric. But but look, you know, as a as a kind of, you know, hustler of white nationalism, Santorum isn't really trying to score points for his his historical, you know, bona fides or something. I right. Mean, yeah, yeah. He, he, he might think of himself as a, you know, as a real, you know, sort of uh, insightful, uh, you know, dude when it comes to America's past. I don't know. Uh, but I never thought Donald Trump had actually read any history. You know, it's it's really about marketing. You know, yeah. it's having a brand and and a, and a notion that you're trying to sell. And and like most marketing, you know, you don't really want to look too close at the details, do you? Because that's that's not the point. It's it's meant to influence people's behavior, people's thinking. You know, and and hopefully, you know, contribute dollars to the you know young America foundation standing up for faith and freedom conference you know there was probably a 1-800 number or something on the screen you know allowing people to contribute uh but there's a more serious thing here you know a question and and, and the question is okay so that's who rick santorum you know says we are you know partly by saying who we aren't you know we're not native Mm -hmm. americans you know uh we're something else uh and so, you know, let's raise that question. You know, who, who are we really? One of those people who replied to uh, Santorum was the uh, historian at, at State University of New York at Genesee campus, uh, Michael Leroy uh, Oberg, who does Native American history. And uh, he wrote a piece in the Washington Post in which he uh, responds to, to Santorum's, uh, you know, claim by saying, well, in so much of this nation's tortured discourse on racism and inequality, we are crusaders on the cheap. We claim that the Iroquois influenced the Constitution without discussing the very real ways that the Constitution justifies a colonial regime that limits Native people's powers over how their communities are governed. And what Oberg was talking about here is a lot of people that responded to Santorum critically said, don't you understand? Of course, we have Native American traditions in our culture. You know, after all, the U.S. Constitution was based on the Iroquois Confederacy. Uh, now, that's something that sort of circulated, uh, you know, over time. It was part of the yeah. sort of the multicultural shift in the 1980s where people were trying to find contributions yeah. from yeah. non-white peoples that, that sort of could take their place right alongside the, you know, the white heroic contributions. And well, OK, so that was a thing for a while. But Oberg uh, rightly points out here is is that it really is no more. Uh, broad-minded or equitable, you know, to make that claim because what you're in effect saying is, yeah, yeah, the Iroquois gave us the constitution by which we launched a genocide against them and other Native people. Mm -hmm. You know, so you're sort of, what, giving credit, if not blame, (laughs) to the people for their, ultimately, their own vanquishing or something, you know, and so, no, that doesn't make sense. So um, there are lots of ways we might talk about you know the the uh, you know the the deep involvement you know of Native America in in whatever it is we are today, without having to resort to that kind of thing, and we don't have to talk about it in the past tense either, like it was something that happened a long time ago. Because you know the Native people are, are 
very much still here with us. So, yeah. yeah, okay. So he says, so Oberg says, we are only too willing to overlook our own complicity in historical injustice and the bloody birth of the American Republic by clinging to comforting myths about who and what we are. And thus our title, Who and What We Are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Josh, uh, you know, for my part, one of the things that, you know, I have to contend with, say, in teaching U.S. history is uh, are those sort of, again, uh, well-worn, you know, tropes about who and what we are that find their way into the narrative. And so, for example, one of the most familiar, we like to say we are a melting pot or Mm -hmm. even that we are a nation of immigrants. You probably heard those a time or two haven't you yeah i think i heard that on schoolhouse rock uh during saturday morning (laughs) cartoons i mean that what a what a device that was for getting across these these myths of the american past right exactly uh and 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 like the little sort of lyrical you know uh tunes that they are they're hard to get out of your head you know i mean you you know so uh very effective but um you know as again as i sometimes tell my students yeah we're a nation of immigrants a nation of immigrants that hates immigrants Right. In other words, it's it's one of these sort of uh, you know internal contradictions of of our, of our past that somehow gets kind of whitewashed, as does I think the melting pot. You know, one of my favorite targets. You know, is this mm-hmm. idea of a melting pot, uh, because it's really uh, I think you know to get to the point, uh, this idea of the melting pot is it's often put forward in ways that Rick Santorum you know would understand. A melting pot that sort of reassures us of our liberality, that we being, again, Rick Santorum defined kind of white Anglo Christian mainstream, uh, you know, assure, uh, reassures us of our liberality and broad shouldered, you know, nature. But really, again, like those, you know, those marketing ads, if you look a little bit closer at it, you start to see some more disconcerting elements because that melting pot notion you know, of a culture of diverse peoples all contributing the best of their own traditions to create mm-hmm. something greater, basically, you know, falls like a house of cards when you actually then look at an example, a contextual example of that happening. Uh, because what it ends up being is a, a culturally normative, white, Anglo-Christian, assimilative model Right. Of, of culture, of American culture. In other words, so let me, let me give you an example of what I mean, right? Um, Taco Bell. <laughs> Taco Bell. Now, you know, Taco Bell, I, I, I've never talked to, to uh, anyone from Mexico, right, who, who wanted me to understand that Taco Bell was somehow actually what? Mexican. Mexican? <laughs> right. Now, we know Taco Bell, the restaurant chain, you know, was was founded. And you have a funny story about that, right? In 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 California, Southern California, I think in the early 60s. Yeah, it sounds right. It was a I think it was a, a white guy who had a hamburger stand. And across the street was a was a Mexican restaurant owned by a Mexican-American proprietor. And uh, he he had thought this was the, the future. So he bought the guy out and and changed the name to Taco Bell. I think his name was Bell. Um, and created his version of, I mean, he'd never been to Mexico. I don't know if he'd ever eaten Mexican food. Uh, created his own version of, of uh, Mexican food translated for a white American audience, basically. Um, and the rest is, as they say, history, because we still have this, <laughs> this, uh, this fast food chain, one of the biggest in the world, which is selling 
kind of an idea of Mexican food. It, it touches on <laughs> what we think of as Mexican food without actually being Mexican food. Um, and uh, yeah, and and there we there we go. We, we have authentic, okay. you know, in California, authentic Mexican food, quote unquote, authentic everywhere. Um, but you know, you still see lines at, at, at Taco Bell certainly as well. Yeah, and I would only add to that that the the evocation of of Mexican food there really is a kind of again a kind of whitewashed culturally normative interpretation of Mexican food that renders it um, you know both literally palatable <laughs> you know mm. to sort of mainstream white uh, tastes I guess you know back in the day. Um, but but also then figuratively palatable for the Rick Santorums of the world, who then can point to something like Taco Bell uh, as being, again, more evidence of just how broad shouldered, inclusive, inviting and liberal we really are. We being, again, the mainstream, you know, white Christian cohort that he imagines, you know, has a kind of what a kind of sole claim over uh, America now. Okay, so and and then so the basic example then I would point to within the Taco Bell paradigm of how this happens, how this isn't really so much as a melting pot, except if you mean by melting pot, melting, assimilating, conforming, reducing to this white cultural standard, this this normative standard of white America is is in the hot sauce, right? Because mm. yeah, you go into Taco Bell and you order uh, you know some some crunchy tacos or something and and you know would you like some would you like some hot sauce so when they say hot sauce you get a choice right and one of the choices and this is the one i want to stick with and uh, you know is 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 the mild hot sauce yeah mild the cold, hot the, sauce the cold hot sauce it makes perfect sense <laughs> <laughs> so nothing if not oxymoronic you know that that in the american melting pot what you really have are these kind of cultural, and I'm putting air quotes around that, ethnic air quotes, um, additives to the otherwise incredibly broad and bland white Christian uh, cultural regime. Uh, right. They're there. And I looked up the, the additives, by the way, the actual recipe for that hot sauce, Josh, and, and you know mm. what was in there, right? Vinegar, xanthan gum, xanthan gum, other, <laughs> you know, my favorite, uh, yeah. mad scientist, you know, preserve food preservatives, uh, salt, lots of salt, mm. uh, but you know, jalapeno, except that when you then look at the breakdown, you know, by percentage of these additives, it. Jalapeno doesn't even really make the percentile ranking, you know. So it's like yeah. maybe just the. The bare whiff of jalapeno—I don't know—is <laughs> what's going they wave it in, in there. Front of the sauce, you know? yeah. <laughs> so that's what we call the melting pot, you know, and that's what we're told then represents the American heritage, American tradition, American past, American dream, American ideal—you name it. And uh, for the Rick Santorums of the world, it all remains therefore incredibly comfortably, reassuringly safe within those bordered limits of that imagination, right? Right. Well, and, and, you know, you mentioned this kind of contributionist idea, you know, the, the Iroquois, we got their constitution from the Iroquois, and then we can stop talking about the Iroquois, right? They've, they've made <laughs> yeah, their contribution, so. they're off. And so, you know, that melting pot idea, 
I think the the notion is supposed to get across is the contribution of all these peoples to the um, the fabric of America or something like that. But but so much of it is about not contributions but erasure, right? The ability to now, mm. uh, you know, erase mm. all this other stuff from that past, so we can have this simple story of American progress, American freedom, American liberty. And in you know the thing I think we also need to note is that wherever we have nations, we have some version of of this, right? Not the exact story. Uh, Rick Santorum, Santorum is appealing to a very specifically American version of of this these these ideas, but. You know, to get to our our, uh, our interview a little bit, you know, one of the things we, we mentioned or Gina mentions a little bit in the interview is this this trope of the 5,000 years of Chinese history, um, which I think make any Chinese historian shudders when they hear that. But um, but but that that in itself is also part of of these kind of legitimizing ideas, uh, this this way of defining who and what we are, because within that 5,000 years of history, certain people are supposed to connect to it. And through connecting to it, they become part of this larger thing called China. But it also, at the same time, by promoting this idea that there is this this history, which goes back 5,000 years, you're also, uh, you know, at least implicitly creating a set of boundaries about, about belonging, about who's in and who's out. And then even amongst those who are in, one of the things we're going we're to see and we're going to talk about in the case of China is that there's this enormous erasure of all the diversity that actually went into this this now uh, you know this new conception of a Chinese nation unified under this uh, majority you know Han ethnicity um, and so you know I think we as historians and we we as historical thinkers always need to be um, looking for these sorts of ideas um, both the ones we're very familiar with which is what Rick Santorum is trying to get across but in other societies as well they've got their own version of that. Um, and, and, and understanding what that is and how it functions will help us, you know, kind of better understand uh, the world we live in. I agree. Uh, I agree. And I think the, uh, the real uh, takeaway, I mean, and there, there are several, but, you know, for me at least, one of the real takeaways of the interview, uh, as we'll talk a bit about in the, uh, the outro afterwards, is uh, the, the common thread, I guess, of lived experience in, in the modern age, you know, uh, yes. which which includes this this array of bewilderment, uh, as we are constantly told uh, and, and, and messaged and marketed, you know, what who and what we are uh, conforming to a certain kind of formulaic script. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, let, let's let's not waste any more time. Let's Let's get into that interview. Talk to me. Talk to me. We are thrilled to have with us today Dr. Gina Ann Tam from Trinity University in San Antonio. Gina is the author of the fantastic recent book, Dialect and Nationalism in China, 1860 to 1960 which uses an exploration of Chinese language policy from the late Qing to the Maoist era to, quote, take aim at the conventional narrative that standard national languages transform peasants into citizens. In doing so, Gina encourages the reader to confront important questions relating to nationalism, ethnicity, authenticity, and the ways in which we organize and categorize knowledge. Welcome to History Against the Grain, Gina. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really delighted to be here. And thank you for that very generous introduction. Of course, of course. Um, can you just start start us off by talking about how you 
got to this topic because it's it's such a fascinating topic and, and certainly I think one that is not um, you know that, that a lot of people don't know that much about you know uh, nationalism is something a lot of people have, have thought about um, ethnicity certainly but but this this language issue and particularly the issue as it relates to China is is very um, interesting and I think it's a, a pretty unique topic can, so can you just talk about how you how you came to this this, this set of ideas. Sure thing. Um, so uh, as, as you just said, actually, nationalism is something that, that people thought a lot about. But as far as how I got to this topic, I think I have to be really honest about the fact that up until I was in college, I didn't think about it a lot. Um, I grew up yeah. in the United States uh, and I said the Pledge of Allegiance every morning and I didn't think much about it mm -hmm. at all, right? And I just sort of thought it was really normative that everybody felt nationalism and like that was just a thing, right? That that was just part of our identities. Right. And I remember uh, when I was in college, I, I studied abroad at the Chinese University of Hong Kong and I took a class on nationalism in Japan and I was the only American in the class. Um, and mm. um, and we got to talking about these things and, and the, the Pledge of Allegiance came up and I just was like, yeah, of course, you know, like that's just something I can sort of recite off the top of my head. And people looked around me and they were like, that's that's really strange. We don't do that. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> especially in a place like Hong Kong, where I think nationalism has has a really like, Hong Kongers have a really complicated relationship with the idea of belonging to a nation. Um, so that sort yeah. of led me to be really fascinated by it. And I read a bunch of books about it in China because that was sort of the field of study that I was I was really uh, taken with in college. Um, and simultaneously, I was studying Chinese, the Chinese language. You know, I, I, I learned it. Um, I learned Mandarin in Hong Kong and I learned it at my own university and such. And then after I graduated college, um, I was in China. I was there actually to study history education and look at sort of nationalism from that perspective. Um, mm -hmm. And I sort of I, I moved to Shanghai and I and I and I was living there and I realized that I had a really hard time communicating with a lot of people. <laughs> and and there was just something really at odds with um, a lot of the books that I had read about Chinese nationalism, where we have these standardizations of of things like flags and dress and calendars and school curriculum and these kinds of things and that the story of nationalism was always standardization um and the and i had sort of come to believe that that was also true of language right that that there was a national language and that's what everyone spoke and and as i'm walking around i'm like that's at odds with my lived experience right that's at odds with what i'm seeing around me um and so there's something amiss here um and i i found a book which by the way is a great book um it was written in 1951 um, about the Chinese national language. And it tells the story of how um, in the early 20th century, elites came together. Uh, they, they um, you know, sort of it's a, it's a sort of longer story, but eventually they come to the conclusion that it needs to be a Chinese national language and it should be based on the language of Beijing. And that is where nationalism came from. Um, and mm -hmm. and it, again, it ends in 1951 because that's when the book was published. But um, I was like, you know, 60, 70 years later or 60 years later when I was thinking about this, um, that's not what happened, right? That's that, that right. then, so there's, there's something, there's another story to be told. And so that's, I think what brought me to this topic. There's so much, uh, I want to respond to there, but, but just real, real quick. Yeah. Um, one, one of the real challenges I think of doing history, particularly I think teaching history is that you you need you need to be able to generalize enough so that the people you're talking to have any idea what you're talking about. Yeah. But sometimes when we generalize, and you know, because the, the the book you're talking about from the 19, 1950s yeah. is telling a very simple story. Yeah. And and I think one of the things you figured out is that simple story does not tell the story at all, right? It, it's it's 
erasing a lot of, of the actual history that went on. Right. And so the, the, the challenge then becomes, how can we talk in general enough language that people can understand us yeah. while not engaging in the kind of historical erasure that, that yeah. a lot of the simple t stories tend to, tend to do? Um, and that's you know one of the reasons why your book was so fascinating to me, because you're kind of digging into those spaces, those those silences. We've been using that that, that idea yeah. um, in the last few episodes. Yeah. Those silences that that often get left out yeah. of the story. No, and this is one of the, especially teaching um, um, Chinese history, this is one of the things that I really struggle with because I think there's, I, I have this sort of knee-jerk feeling that I have to teach the sort of simple generalizations that are just really common yeah. narratives before I can complicate it. And I'm like, but then I'm just reinforcing it. But being able to teach yes. those all at the same time, it's a challenge. I'm, I can't say that I figured out exactly how to do it well, but it's. I think it's worth at least considering how we can do that in a, in a way that doesn't start with the narrative that we need to complicate, if that makes sense. Yes, right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Here's the bad narrative, and now I'm going to tear that all down. Right, exactly. I mean, even... even even just using the idea of China, like especially when you're doing, you know, Shang Dynasty China, like yeah. Shang Dynasty China, you're putting China at the end, but that's yes. it's not China. Yes. Right? Oh, um, that's exactly I, my my whole history of China to 1800. Um, like that's the yeah. theme is, and I, like right. usually I hope none of my students are listening to this because then they'll know what I ask in the final <laughs> exam. But usually I, my final exam question is, does China have 5,000 years of history? Hopefully, getting them yeah. to at least think about. Right, like how are we defining China? How are we defining history? Yeah. Right, and um, and it, it usually leads to really good essays. Okay, so next year, any of my students, they they know what the final exam question is. Right, right. <laughs> we'll, we'll 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 redact that part or something. Okay. Like that in, in the future. <laughs> so as we get into your book, uh, I just want to start with with the first sentence in your first chapter. Okay. Um, to kind of get get us into the, to talking about the, the larger ideas, you say elites at the end of the Qing Dynasty saw the Chinese language as a problem, which is it's a great opening line. But can you explain what, what you mean by that and how that kind of fits into your your larger the, 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 the ideas and the history you're going to explore sure. in the rest of the book? Sure. Um, so I, I think it's important that we start sort of like at a time and a place. Right. And so um, mm -hmm. when when we say the Chinese language, um, we'll start there. Uh, the most sort of immediate answer that would be like, what is that, right? The, the, the easy answer right. is what we in English call Mandarin. Uh, in the mainland, we'd call it Putonghua, or in, in the People's Republic, we'd call it Putonghua. Uh, in Taiwan, it'd be called Guoyu, but it's it's this language that in English we call Mandarin. Um, and as an example, mm -hmm. I, I just looked this up a, a, a few days ago, um, but uh, the United Nations has six official languages, um, and one of them yeah. is Chinese. Um, and if you if you look into like what do they mean by that they they will eventually sort of explain it means it means mandarin um so when we say sort of the chinese language we have an immediate association right of this language um and what my book does is says that that's really complicated and misleading um but we'll start there um and I, one of the ways that my book digs into this is it says that like hey there's lots of chinese languages actually right there's, there's lots of them but the second way my my book um sort of um, complicates that question of sort of what is the Chinese language is to show that the entire idea of that being a question has a history um, and a relatively recent one. Um, and so mm -hmm. uh, at the end of the Qing dynasty, so we're looking at like the end of the 19th century um, and um, 
there like the Qing dynasty had been ruling for 200 something years at that point um, and had been dealing with a lot of crises um, had been like starting in the 18 well starting for a long time there were a lot of peasant rebellions but as far as sort of foreign crises right they, they went to war with Britain in the 1840s and then a subsequent series of losses of wars with imperialistic powers mostly from the west but also at this point Japan um, and they're sort of entering into this world of, 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 of like sort of global modernity shaped by Western imperialism. Um, and it, it, it feels very sort of sink or swim, right? Like either you, you join right. this world of nation states or you very much become the victim of imperialism. Um, and as elites are looking at this um, about like sort of what do we do, right? How do we how do we create a model whereby we are the kind of nation that doesn't get invaded and taken over? Um, <laughs> and one of the things they come to is that like nations have a unified sense of identity that is that is shaped by a lot of different things, but one of them is by language. Um, and so what I what I sort of the reason I started that 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 chapter that way is because I wanted to establish the fact that this idea of thinking of China's languages as a problem in terms of sort of the global world of, or like this, this like global world of modern nation states, um, that that is where we get this idea that like, oh my gosh, not having a Chinese national language is a problem. Right. Um, right. and, and I, there's, I'll, as a, as a modernist, I always get, um, you know, push back against pre-modern historians who will say that like, well, elites were bothered by the lack of oral unity before this, which is true. But that is a very different mm. thing of saying that like, we're annoyed that people don't all speak the same language and there's not this like unified like language which elites can all speak across the empire. That's a very different kind of problem than um, if all of our country's people don't think of themselves as citizens that speak the same language, then we are failing. We are not modern enough to survive. That's a very different kind of problem. Um, and that's where we're right. at at the end of the 19th, early 20th century. Yeah, you don't usually think of, of language as like an existential challenge. Right. right? Uh, but that, that seems to be how they're seeing it, that if we can't, you know, come to construct the kind of society that that, you know, these these places that are keep defeating us have constructed, then we're not going to survive. And I think there's probably a little social Darwinism built in that yes, as well. Yes, very much you know, so. I, I just want to quote you again real quick, uh, because it, this also, I think, really ties into what makes this, this book important. You know, beyond the, the specific topic even is is what you're doing is you're trying to tell a story, as I said earlier, that, that hasn't been told. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the reasons it hasn't been told is because we get to, you know, contemporary times and it's it's so easy for us to just say, as the United Nation does, that there's a Mandarin language. And, you know, you hear all the time, you know, Mandarin Chinese, the most spoken language in the world and, and this sort of thing. And, and you're basically saying, well, what's Mandarin and what's language and what does it mean to be spoken? Right. All, all three parts of that. Yeah. You're kind of um, uh, putting uh, questioning. But but the other thing that I think is really important is, is you have this line you say in the, your introduction, you say presupposing the ending of the story blinds us to how history transpired. Um, and it, it's it's such a, a well put way of expressing this this challenge. I mean, we sometimes call it presentism, yeah. But the, this challenge of of trying to see the past, you know, from the perspective of well, we're already, you know, as I say to my students, the present is the biggest spoiler for for the past, right? <laughs> we already know how things turned out, but but knowing how things turned out doesn't mean we shouldn't study how how we actually got there, right? Um, and sometimes we just forget about the process, the the, the debates, the challenges. 
the tensions that that resulted in 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 an outcome. So you, you, I think you're very much highlighting the complexity of that of that that story, and, and in a way that you know, we, we'll talk about this more later. But it's really important for us our understanding of you know how history transpires, as you say. Uh, but also how people think about themselves in the present, yeah, as well as in the past. Absolutely, yeah, and and I think that the the best example of this is uh, the story of the national language, right? And so today, yeah. uh, Mandarin, um, Putonghua uh, is is it, its exact definition is sort of it's a language that takes Beijing. Um, um, Beijing Fangyan, which is the, the, the word that I'm sort of tracing throughout this book of, of, of local mm. languages. So Beijing language as its base, um, northern Fangyan as its base Fangyan, and then modern vernacular literature as its standard um, vocabulary and grammar. So that's the definition of Mandarin today. It's mostly based right. on the language of Beijing um, with some sort of caveats there, right? Um, and um, when I started doing this research project, I'd have a lot of people say like, well, wasn't the national language always going to be Mandarin? I mean, or wasn't the national language always going to be based on the language of Beijing? That's the capital, mm -hmm. right? It was um, like, like, like foreign missionaries were focused on that as being sort of like the, the, the main language. It, um, it is mutually intelligible with a lot of other areas of China as opposed to a lot of the Southern Fangyan that are not, right? Um, and um, and so, but when we when we sort of presume that, then we're we're writing the history. We already know what history we're going to write, um, and right. we're missing a lot of sort of pushback against this. And and one example of this is that uh, the national language that um, is used in Taiwan and uh, the PRC today, um, it was like basically it was 1925. Um, that um, a bunch of people came together and they were like, all right, the, the national language just needs to be based on the language of Beijing. But that wasn't the first national language. Um, they actually tried to create mm -hmm. a different one about 13 years, 12 years, 12 years before that. Um, and the idea behind that national language that was that was created in 1913 was not sort of like which Fangyan do we choose to be the national language. Um, instead, they were sort of debating of like, how do we create a language that represents people that speak all kinds of different languages, right, that are of the same sort of like, 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 ethnic identity and ethnic group, but they speak a bunch of different languages, right? And so what they come up yeah. with is this, um, it's mostly based on the language of Beijing, but they sort of insert phonological characteristics from other languages into it, right? This gets really technical. But the idea is that it's not pure Beijing Fangyan. And the idea behind it is that we need to invent something that brings more people into it than just the people who, are, who's, who live in the North, right? Um, and what I love about this story is that it shows that people are cognizant of the fact that if you just pick a language to represent everybody, that's going to get pushback and it's going to leave people out and it's going to create an artificial hierarchy um, that a lot of people don't agree with, in particular because of a lot of our elites are from the South, right? Um, mm. Various places in the South. Um, and so uh, once they sort of abandon this hybridized national language, largely because then no one speaks it because they invented it, right? Um, and so, right. right? And so there, there's, there's a lot of sort of pushback in terms of practicality here um, and various other reasons. And the, the guys who sort of really advocated for this at first and then abandoned it a decade later were like, well, yeah, it's what we had to do. Um, but this idea of, of like sort of like Fangyan, these local languages being valuable, being a valuable part of the nation doesn't go away. So when we just sort of presuppose that Beijing's Fangyan was always going to be like, it's always going to be the national language, we miss 
why people are attached to their local language now and the kinds of meanings that they attach to it. And that's very relevant. That's that's real in the present. Um, and so mm-hmm. we're, it's sort of like in talking about what you said with historical erasure, um, that's what we're erasing is this thing that is, is happening right now um, by not looking at sort of these failed experiments that were based in very real concerns. Right. Yeah. Man, you know, I like you uh, bringing up this kind of, uh, for lack of a better descriptor, kind of street level Chinese language, you know, these these uh, Fangyang um languages that uh, have their own, you know, sort of autonomous, you know, cultural existence and history. I mean, just to set the stage again for our listeners, we're talking about, you know, an immense uh, territorial nation, right? You know, that has has encompassed uh, an enormous diversity, uh, ethnic and linguistic diversity of peoples. And so when you talk about, you know, Feng Yan is this kind of umbrella for what effectively, I guess, by default becomes what the non-Mandarin spoken uh, language yeah. is spoken by people in China. Yeah, well, <laughs> that, I'd uh, say non-Mandarin yeah. language is spoken by people who identify as Han Chinese because they're, they're okay. very, okay. yeah, because they're very clear that like Mongolian is not a Feng Yan. Right. Like, um, and, and there's, there's a, there's a linguist, God, he's so interesting. Um, he, he did his, he did his doctorate in the United States. Uh, he wrote his dissertation on a, on a, like, um, indigenous Canadian group on their language. Um, and then went back to Mm. China into, in Southwest China and did a bunch of field work. Did a, did a bunch of field work of the the Luo who are who live in Southwest China, um, and they um, and like making the case that these are not Fangyan, their languages because the people are not Han Chinese. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt mm. you, but I, I think that like no. the ethnicity part of this is also really <laughs> fascinating. Yeah, no, and I and I love how you break that down in in the book because what you know I mean it seems to me what ultimately. Uh, you know, you're talking about here, what we're trying to figure out is is how culture works, in this case, you know, language, right? And so in an age of self-conscious nationalism, you know, where you actually have that meeting taking place, uh, I think it was in Beijing in 1925. So right? the, sort of the, like- the conference, um, oh, shoot, I I don't know off the top of my head where it was held. I think it was Beijing. Um, <laughs> well, let's let's say it was held in Beijing. Yeah. In any case, uh, it, that was in 1913. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and I thought you know the, the it sort of reminded me of something like the Council of Nicaea, right? You know how yeah. you know the Roman Emperor says, well, let's get all the you know the Western, you know, sort of Roman friendly bishops together and decide what Christianity really is. Yeah. And then once we do that, then we can kind of you know. Um, you know, try to punish, you know, potentially, you know, uh, those we're going to define as heretics or something. So here we have now in, in modern China, we have this sort of decision, a kind of, of you know, let, let's say it's a, a kind of political decision that Mandarin will be privileged as a mother tongue. I mean, never mind that, you know, you could argue that for most of Chinese history, nobody spoke at what outside the uh, you know the, the elites of, of the chinese imperial system or something you know but a mother tongue that then will be promoted as such right even through the prc it seemed you, know, you were suggesting that you know for kids in schools you have a kind of promotion state promotion of mandarin now as a mother tongue yeah um 
that children will read, for example, in schools, you know, or yes. will learn in schools. Yes. Uh, that I suppose could be used in any of the many organs of power, right, of, of the PRC, um, you know, from, I guess, probably what, you know, official state pronouncements to right. speeches to, you know, God knows, marketing, who knows. But at the same time, you know, you got this deep tradition of these, let's call them other Chinese languages, you know, yes. because that's kind of how they're defined. Yeah. Right? And yet, so somebody like, uh, and I forget his name, but he's a rapper, a Chinese rapper down in the South, I think yes. you mentioned. Yeah. Who's very kind of, you know, in, in traditional kind of hip hop way, very militant, you know, about the language of uh, Chinese hip hop, which is non-Mandarin, right? Right, yeah. Uh, and so that represents its own kind of what? Its own kind of of power, cultural yeah. power, you yes. know? So. Yes. I, I would love to hear you talk about that, about this sort of, you, you call it a dialectical thing, you know, right? That yeah. there's this basic tension between that quote unquote mother tongue yes. of Mandarin and all these very vigorous, you know, um, Chinese languages that fit under that umbrella category. Many of which, by the way, some of which are, again, for our, our listeners, some of which are reasonably similar, but others are essentially mutually incomprehensible right i mean yeah. there's just terrific diversity there yeah uh, yeah so so okay so in this battle of culture you know talk about how that that kind of plays out right you know even in the present day in china yeah so i i i want to start this answering this really great question with actually two threads the first is to talk a little bit about sort of the the complexity of this term that we're talking about. So I've mentioned this term now a couple of times and you've mentioned it too as Fang Yen. And we usually translate it as the word dialect, right? That's usually the, the mm -hmm. term that we would use um, in English. Uh, and um, this gets really complicated because uh, basically all of these non-Mandarin Chinese languages are called Fang Yen. Um, and some of them are mutually intelligible with others, right? And we'll have like Fang Yen regions Right, that like within that there there are sort of like other fangyan, um, but some of them really are not right. They're like they're they're as different as, as Spanish and Portuguese. Like Cantonese and Mandarin are about as different as Spanish and Portuguese. That's a really rough kind of corollary here, um, but we're using the same term to talk about languages as different as Cantonese and Mandarin, um, as well as sort of like 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 Beijing fangyan as different from Mandarin when, when they're, they're almost essentially the same, right? There's just like some differences in vocabulary and pronunciation. Um, and so you have this catch all term that is, is, is um, given all of the connotations of dialect, the political connotations of dialect, right? That are in that they cannot represent a sort of like big cohesive identity. They are not sort of have no relation to the state. They're ultimately very local. Right. Um, and therefore can't be languages. And so I, I do think it's worth talking about just how much diversity is here, um, because I think sometimes when I when I talk about this topic, um, you know, I'll say like, you know, China has a lot of linguistic diversity and people will say like, oh, yes, just like this other country. Um, and sometimes that 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 metaphor works very well. And sometimes I'm like, no, those are like those linguistic differences are like on a very different scale than what we're seeing in China. Um, and so as far as your the second part of your question, right, which is 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 how sort of what kinds of cultural powers exist. Um, 
Yeah, so the way that I set up my book is I argued that I, I want to look at this question of nationalism from the perspective of these local languages, of Fangyan. Um, because I, I, like, on the one hand, there is this story um, from that, that's similar to this, this book that was written a very long time ago and is still told to be true today, where there is a real push to promote and promulgate and enforce a homogenous Chinese national identity that is tied to a singular language, and that is the national language, and that everything else is subsidiary. Everything else is subordinate. is is both not is both like linguistically less important, but also culturally and politically and even economically less important. Um, but on the other hand, you have the second narrative of people who are pushing back against that, right? And you bring up. Um, there's, I, I talk about a couple of rappers, um, both all of which are, were, it was so much fun to do, um, to dig into that, um, sort of those current events, right? Who argue that actually, no, like my, my, my Chengdu Fangyan is, is really like a more authentic representation of who I am um, in a lot of regards, but including as a Chinese citizen, right? You have people in, um, in, um, Guangzhou, right, who speak Cantonese, who are saying that actually Cantonese is an even more Chinese language than Mandarin because it has this older, more venerable history. That's something I get told a lot, actually, from a lot of different people from different Fangyan is that our Fangyan has a deeper, richer connection hmm. to the Chinese past um, than Mandarin does, which is, is, is usually sort of framed as relatively recent or new language. Um, and so these, to me, exist in tension throughout the 20th century. And that if we want to understand sort of what it means to be Chinese today, we can't just take one narrative or the other, right? We need to see how they build on each other, how they respond to one another. And so, um, as you said, um, I, I, I call this sort of a dialectical model, right? Where, they're, where you have one and then you have the other and then they respond and they create sort of a new narrative about what it means to be Chinese that, 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 that gets sort of pulled out throughout the 20th century. Um, and what I, what, I, what I hope is sort of a bigger takeaway, um, in particular for your listeners who I hope find Chinese history somewhat interesting but may have, have interest in other areas of the world, right, is that I, I think we have to approach nationalism like this. We can't approach nationalism as just a, like, a homogenizing hegemonic narrative, but we, I don't think we can also just say, like, well, nationalism is diverse and that's the end of that. I think we need to know how these mm -hmm. two narratives interact. Mm. I like that a lot, Gina. You know, right now I'm doing um, a lot of reading in, in uh, colonial history, Western colonial history, uh, in the Atlantic world in reading about, you know, creolization, right? Yeah. And, and most of the, you know, most of the scholars are really saying, look, this isn't, this isn't a question of sort of trickle down culture, you know, like, let's say you're looking at the mainland of North America, you know, where you have a, a British or an English culture that somehow trickles down and to some extent gets, um, you know, assimilated by, you know, non-English peoples or something. And we'll call that Creole. I mean, there's, there's very much that kind of dialectic that you talk about as people engage, people of different cultures engage, particularly in, in the case of America on, a, on what was essentially a foreign ground to them, Africans and Europeans, you know, they're, they're creating culture with the materials at, at hand, you know, and, and, and sort of through these dialectical processes, you know, it's an ongoing process. It's not like, well, there we've, we've created the culture, or in China's case there, we've created the language and now we're, we're good to go because yeah. As I like to, you know, tell my students, culture—it's—it's it's like water, right? It finds the cracks, and <laughs> and just as you know, just as soon as you, you know, 
issue a pronouncement about it. You know, like here in California, for example, we get treated, uh, right, Josh, every so often to uh, English as the official language kind yes. of ballot proposition, you know. Yes, and, yeah. And I mean, there's so much irony in there, but it's not even just the irony, right, you know, that, that we can look at and kind of cross our eyes over. It's what I think is maybe a little more serious and in, in terms of how power gets used in these yes. conflicts, you know, yes. or in these, you know, you, you, you open up this, you know, always fascinating discussion, right, of authenticity. Yeah. And you quote a guy who we like a lot, and we've, we've mentioned before uh, on the, uh, the program is uh, Prasenjit Dwara. Yeah. Right. Whose book, um, Rescuing History from the Nation. Yes. Uh, you know, focuses on a lot of the same sort of issues as, as your own book. Uh, and, you know, one thing he says, and, and you quote him, you know, in, in your yeah. book is that, um, you know, the nation state stakes its claim to sovereign authority in part as custodians of authenticity. Yes. You know, and to me, man, that that is an idea that has legs, Gina. You know, it yeah. works through your study. It runs right through the modern age of nation states and nationalism. And so, yeah, I would love you to just talk a little bit more about how this issue of authenticity is used on all sides, maybe yeah. of these China, the Chinese, the Chinese language spectrum. Yes. Oh my gosh, I could talk about authenticity all day long. I, I think it's <laughs> it's such a it's such a fascinating um, um, topic, and it's one that I I feel like I only scratched the surface in this book. Um, but I the way that I have my students talk about it um, to the point where they they sort of. At this point, like it's a brand I have of, of making my students talk about authenticity in food um, and sort of what is authentic food and these kinds of things. Um, but in, in my book, the way that I, I talk about it is that when so if we sort of let's let's rewind back to the to the early 20th century um, and they've um, and a sort of series of elites have declared that, that there is a national language. It is based on the language of Beijing. Right. And. Um, or like even earlier, right, we have this hybrid language. But in any case, right, we have we have this language serving as the national language. And one of the pushbacks it gets um, is that it is it doesn't have this connection either to history or to the lived experience of most Chinese citizens who don't speak this language, right? Um, and one of the ways this comes through um, is that there is a folk song collection movement. Um, and so you have um, a group of elites um, who, who, who really care about sort of like the, 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 like thinking about the nation in terms of the quotidian, in terms of sort of the bucolic countryside. Um, they're reading folk song collectors and folk song studies from Europe and the United States. Uh, they're translating it um, for their readers in their, in their periodical folk songs weekly. Um, and they're arguing, right, that the, the true language of authenticity, of the, of the language that, that just people speak when they're just sort of spontaneously expressing themselves and expressing their emotions, expressing who they are, um, that that's fang yan. It's not this national language because the vast majority of people, if they do speak it at all, are learning it, right? It's not, it's not the language they grew up with. Um, and this is something actually that it's very clear that as we get throughout the 20th century, that, that, um, that, that national language proponents feel like they have to respond to. Um, and one of the ways we see this is that um, 
so you'll you'll have sort of like people who will argue that that Fang Yan are the, are these these truly sort of like authentic relics of history, right? Um, and so then you'll have people be like, well, Beijing Fang Yan also has this really esteemed history, right? And like, let's talk about the history of Beijing Fang Yan, and there, there'll also be an attempt to lay claim to that. Um, and then you'll have others be like, well, now we need to study Beijing Fang Yan and study the sort of folk songs that exist there. Uh, one example, actually, I have in my book. Um, is because I saw it on the subway in 2009 uh, was there was this like sort of like public service campaign of people trying to like learn Beijing Fang Yan um, as though it's <laughs> is this sort of like this 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 cool like you like language that's that's unique has this connection to the city um, and so I think you see an attempt to push back against the idea that 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 Mandarin is just a language of the state um, and that that Mandarin is a really new language um, or any of these kinds of things. And it's because one of the challenges that comes early on is that the national language isn't authentic. It's it's not a good representative of the nation. Um, and so um, so, yeah, I think that that's a really important sort of thread throughout my book is is how is how essentially you have state actors trying to respond to the challenges that they're getting. Um, and usually by trying to use the languages of those, ch uh, language of those challenges like authenticity. That's so much good stuff there. Uh, one of the things that, that keeps kind of coming up maybe in the background, it was something I, I thought about a lot as I was reading your book yeah. was just the way that, that kind of in the modern in the modern world, the way that knowledge was collected and organized and categorized and these taxonomies that are created. Yeah. And you very much see the way that, you know, as China enters the 20th century in particular, and then especially after the May 4th movement in 1919, when there's this this new kind of mania for, you know, was it Mr. Sciences? Yeah. The, the designation, right? That, that everything needs to be kind of uh, turned in. All knowledge needs to be um, organized in a very particular way. And, and, and in doing that, what ends up happening in, in, in China and, and all throughout the kind of colonized and semi-colonized world is that people, as they, you know, uh, seek out modernity, begin to accept a bunch of the assumptions, a bunch of the categories, a bunch of the taxonomies that come from, um, from, from Europeans largely. Yeah. Um, and, and things that were created, you know, maybe not explicitly, but at least implicitly, um, to uh, elevate Europe in the kind of hierarchy of, or European nations in the hierarchy of, of, of nations. Yeah. And so one of the things, you know, reading this and, and reading other stuff about this period in, in China, but, but also in other parts of the world, is there's almost this um, uh, frustration, I, I feel, yeah. right? That, that people are just accepting these, these assumptions as things they now need to adopt. And it's, it's almost as if... Um, you know, you have the creation of these categories, the creation of these taxonomies, these manners of organization, yeah. all of which are meant ultimately to to take knowledge and then make them make knowledge, uh, you know, accessible, right? Yeah. So you you know where to go to find certain knowledge. Yeah. But at a certain point, and you see this in the book, what's really happening is that instead of those taxonomies and categories just organizing reality, yeah, what they're forcing is reality to then fit into the categories and. The, the taxonomies, right? So it's, things almost get reversed where where humans become enslaved to the, the yeah. categories and taxonomies instead of using them as tools yeah. to organize things. And it has huge effects. You yeah. mentioned, you know, the translation of Fang Yan into dialect. Yes. Right? That's not just a, a you know, a, a, a minor thing because what that ultimately does is it makes all those Fang Yan uh, subordinate to yeah. something bigger, something more important. Yeah. And then within these kind of European assumptions, 
if you're not progressing, you're dying, right? Yeah. And so all those fangyan now, you, you meant you, you said relics, yeah. right? They're, they're like relics that you can put into a museum, those folk song collections. Yeah. You know, those are collections of, of things that are dying, basically. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, we sometimes think of knowledge as just, it's just knowledge, right? right. We just collect this stuff and then we have a bunch of knowledge around us. But what's happening is that the, the, the taxonomies are being constructed, the categories are being constructed, the knowledge is being constructed. Yeah. And then it's forcing people in China, people in Japan, people in the Ottoman Empire, people in India to then, you know, kind of force themselves into those categories in a way that, that continues to serve the interest of, of European power in many ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it's, a, it's kind of a, a fascinating process. It's so frustrating to, to, to read about and to, to kind of witness in these histories because um, you can just see, you know, kind of the wave of modernity just crashing over all these peoples. Yeah. Um, and they either have to, I guess, ride the wave or they got to dive through it or they just got to be crushed by it. Right. And it, it just, you just keep seeing it happen again and again and again. And it, it has this massive effect in how we see the past yeah. um, and how uh, people understood their present yeah. at the same time. Yes. So um, I don't, I don't try to usually wade into Twitter debates, but one I got into like <laughs> a, a month or so ago was someone who just says like, like, like Cantonese is a dialect. This is just fact. Um, and this is something that I get told a lot, right? That is like fungin or dialects. This is just objective truth, right? Um, and yep. and what my book tries to do um, is is to push back. It's like no, the idea. Like first of all, there's two different kinds of histories. One is this creation of taxonomies of knowledge, right? Putting things into right. places. The other is the import of tax taxonomies, or I don't import is the wrong word. I think translation of taxonomies right. um, into which because there is a there is a there is a certain amount of creativity going on here. I, it's not entirely just sort of like downloading exactly as it is, um, but that that is also part of this process. Um, and what I think my book maybe doesn't make as explicit as, as I can try to now um, is I talk a lot about like a, a group of linguists, um, most of whom study in the United States and Europe and learn mm -hmm. these like learn comparative linguistics. Um, and come back to China and say like, hey, we like like they're also translating the Swedish linguist who wrote this long, long book about this, like the history of, of phonology in China. Um, and they're like and they, they basically say that, like, we need to we, we need to make China legible according to these 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 knowledge bases that are not necessarily just Western, but they're scientifically objective. Right. Like that, that these yep. taxonomies just exist. Um, and, and one example of this actually is there was this there was this article, I think it was in the 1920, 1924, of, of another person who was a little bit more suspicious of these taxonomies and was like, you know, Fangyan, the term has a long history. It has a long usage. It's 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 this is a different beast than what we're seeing in Europe and the United States, right? And there's a response by another, he's a professor of English, his name is Lin Yutang, um, and he's famous for a variety of things. Um, but he's like, there should be, like literally verbatim, there should be absolutely no confusion as to what Fangyan are, they are dialects. Um, and he goes into a little <laughs> bit, he's like, he's like, languages come from language families and dialects come from languages and there should be no confusion that when we talk about fangyan we're using the terms from modern comparative <laughs> linguistics and so like and 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 just like no hesitation there and and one of the things that i don't think i make as clear in my book as i as i you know sort of in retrospect wish i had is that there are people pushing back against this 
But the people who mm -hmm. are pushing back against this are not the really famous linguists who are being published and whose methodologies are being replicated, right? So we have like right. sort of a few really key players here um, who are doing a bunch of Fangyan surveys um, and, and, and they're doing them within this presumption of a taxonomy in which dialects stem from languages um, and, and they're creating this knowledge and they're creating this paper trail that then the next generation of linguists study under them and they continue to sort of make normative this, this hierarchical taxonomical model of language. Um, and, and again, I, I, they're not the only voices, but they're the ones who have the power to to, to set the methodology, right? Um, and, and smuggle into acceptance this idea that this is just truth that it's not something that that was created right and and um that i think is is one of the sort of main themes of my book is like how did this translation not just like who was the first person to pair dialect and fangyan these two terms together um there's a, a scholar lydia leo who calls these pairings super signs right like the like the the, mm -hmm. the the attachment of one word in one language to another word in another language right um is not just how though that pairing happened, but how all of the connotations of that pairing then seeped into the sort of like knowledge epistemological landscape um, of what's happening in China. Um, and so that that is sort of like one of the things I, I want to come out of this book is where those taxonomies come from, because you're right, it, it serves by by making normative and presuming this is just sort of like transcendental at like objective truth that we are right. serving people who had the power to create those narratives in the first place. And the one thing I'll add to that is that this hierarchical model also serves particular power, like, like, like also upholds particular power inequalities within China too. Right. Mm -hmm. I think one of the yeah. reasons that you have real insistence from the Chinese government that this is fact um, is because it serves their interest too, right? It, it like it, it is mm -hmm. useful to be the arbiters. It is it, like useful in terms of sort of a, like like holding on to power to be the arbiters of a collective mm -hmm. identity. Um, and that is that is I think what happens there too. And the last thing I'll say here is actually to me, um, this is also not something I say in my book, but I, I hope will inspire others. This to me is why just like getting out of the history here and getting into the methodology of what historians do we really need to spend mm -hmm. more time looking at places outside of like america and the united or the united states and, and <laughs> yes. europe right is because if like imagine what terms and taxonomies we would use if the model for how languages relate to things like nation and ethnicity had come from china right like we would have to yeah. come up with new terms and there are Chinese linguists who try to create new translations for Fangyan um, and come up with new terms for this. Um, and I and I taught and I mentioned these in my book. And and, and ultimately, I, I don't sort of like like use them throughout the book because I'm a historian and I'm trying to use the terms that they're using as opposed to creating my new mm -hmm. terms. But also these terms don't hold all that much. And I think the reason that they, they're not super popular um, is because we are really hesitant to use like Asia or China as method as opposed to just like, oh, and right. this is happening over here too, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, man, I love that, Josh. Can I jump in for just a second? Here? Yeah, yeah. No, go for it. Um, so yeah, I really, you know, I'm, I'm loving this, Gina, because you're talking about this process of, 
of translation and adaptation and, you know, at some point kind of cultural enforcement, let's say, by the powers of the state, you know, Um, even where you get these um, sort of Western notions, these culturally normative notions, uh, you know, that as Josh was saying, you know, these taxonomies that are brought and you, you find yourself trying to put this sort of square peg of Chinese experience into the round hole of yeah. you know, European taxonomy or something. Uh, but, you know, what we tend to see, I think, you know, and, and what's so useful, as you say, about getting outside our particular borders, you know, out of the silos of our national histories, is that we find these processes, you know, and, and they look f- sort of familiar, you yeah. know, and, and, and maybe not, you know, as academics, we'll find, you know, plenty to say that that isn't, strictly speaking, you know, um, the same. Uh, and that's fine. But, you know, there's a kind of analogous process, I guess, is what I would say. And so we, we were talking about authenticity a minute ago. And, you know, it seems that sort of the, you know, the first cousin to authenticity is, is one that you mentioned is, uh, is amnesia. Yeah. Because as, mm-hmm. as soon as you find yourself defining the authentic, you know, you sort of dehistoricize it, right? You kind of take it out of history and make it yeah. this sort of unchanging, immutable, timeless, yeah. um, you know, sort of something. Yeah. Uh, but then that also requires, obviously, that people, you know, smart asses like us, don't start poking around in the historical <laughs> archives to find an actual history to this, you know, a constructed moment of construction or something. And so they really also depend, it seems to me, to a great extent on, on amnesia, what um, that is not remembering. In other right. words, somebody like you know Michelle Rolf Trou, the the Haitian scholar, you know, famously uh, wrote about you know the silences and 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 the not remembered or the unremembered uh, history. So I guess what I'm asking um, in my in my zeal for <laughs> what you're doing here is just you know well, what is the state of amnesia, you know, um, these days? Uh, do you feel in you know in in the PRC uh, where that kind of official sort of, uh, you know, defining of things is concerned? That's a great question. Um, and um, because like this question of historical amnesia is something I think when we, we talk about the PRC, we're almost always talking about things like censorship, right? Like there's a there's a great book called The, mm-hmm. the People's Republic of Amnesia that is, is particularly about sort <laughs> of like how how the state um, silences um, like like like, you know, sort of like pieces of its past that it doesn't want remembered. Um, and this is particularly about the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989. Um, but I, I think that when sort of like what your question, I think, is, is getting at in a, in a really thoughtful way um, is is like, how do we how are we sort of like erasing like where certain things come from, where the nation comes mm-hmm. from, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is to me a big part of, um, you mentioned authenticity and the word that I thought of as as equally sort of like relevant here is tradition, um, is that mm-hmm. the idea, mm-hmm. um, a, a, a big sort of thing that China historians have really struggled with um, is that in the early 20th century, a lot of these elites are drawing a really sharp line between tradition and modernity, um, that these are two opposed concepts, right? And that, that one is, is old and one is new, right? One is, is backwards and one is progressive and these kinds of things. Whereas sort of like, just like authenticity, uh, I, um, one of the, the works I cite in my book, you know, talks about authenticity as this, this very modern construct because it comes from an anxiety of things lost, Right. And so we have to right. reinvent these mm-hmm. things that we have lost. 
Um, whereas as tradition is like that too, right? It's, 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 it's an invention um, coming from, a, from sort of like the anxiety of the modern, right? Or as a way to define the modern by what we're not, um, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And that means yeah. erasing when do, when do these things even start happening, right? Um, I, I, rem like, I remember there, there's often com conversations about um, the chipao, which is a, a, a dress. Like if, if, you, if you think about sort of like this idea of like, a, a, a Chinese style dress. It's, it's um, high necked, usually made with a, a beautiful sort of floral silk, very form fitting mm -hmm. as being traditional um, Chinese dress. But like it was invented as a very modern dress um, in, in when it was invented. Um, and that sort of defining who we are through tradition requires that we have an amnesia about where these things come from, right? Of mm -hmm. when they come from. Mm -hmm. um, and now if we sort of take that to language, um, to me, that that in to, like one of the things that I, I think where amnesia comes in, because um, this is something I haven't, I don't know that I've thought about a ton. Um, but off the top of my head, uh, one of the areas where I see amnesia coming in here is 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 a the idea that this hierarchy between language and fangyan is new. Um, I see I see a lot of sometimes people say, well, like no, China's had a national language for a really long time because this one emperor tried to unify. Uh, pronunciation. And it's like, well, that's not the same thing as what's happening here, right? But we're trying to create an amnesia about this idea that the national language is a, is a modern project, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so I, to me, that is, that is the, the one of the sort of areas where amnesia is really important is, is, is the creation of this hierarchy between language and feng yin. Mm. I, I want to keep us in the present a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and this might maybe this will be our last our last question as we get close close closer to our, our time. But um, there's a quote kind of towards the end of the book by a, a linguist named Wang, uh, Wang Li uh -huh. uh, that read to me. It's meant to be comforting, I think, but it read very sinister to me. So he says this is in 1956 in, a, in an article in the uh, People's Daily. Yeah. He says to promulgate Putonghua does not mean the extermination of Fang Yan. Fang Yan, uh, I'm sorry, when Fang Yan finally dissipates into our Minzu's common language, Minzu means like ethnicity, is that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Uh, finally dissipates into our Minzu's common language, that will be one or 200 years from now. Those who love their Fang Yan needn't worry. All that is required now is that members of the Han speak a second language beside their native tongue, and that is Putonghua. <laughs> So again, you know, he's he's kind of, I think, gently saying, oh, it's not a not a big deal. You know, you we're not going to get rid of your your Fang Yang, but they are dying, right? To be clear, <laughs> to be they're clear, going to die. yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so that's 1956. We're now obviously in in, in 2021. Yeah, we're not yet at the the hundred years from when he when he said that. But you know, obviously, there's been uh, this new drive looking beyond the Fang Yang to you know what's happening in Xinjiang yeah um, we're seeing this with uh, some some of the Mongol areas as well certainly Tibet yeah where there's this increased drive to not allow the teaching of, of their native languages in schools yeah uh, to, to teaching Chinese so how much do you see this kind of contemporary these contemporary issues with the so-called minority peoples in, in China yeah as kind of the long tail of this of this process that began you know, under the PRC, yeah, you know, certainly maybe further back than that, but at least, 
you know, under 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 Mao and in the PRC, yeah, um, from the 1950s on. Or is it is it something new that we have to we have to see kind of independently of, of this this story? That's a that's such a great question, um, and it's a question I get asked a lot. And um, every time I get asked, I'm like, I'm really I I really need to do like more reading on this because I really want to know more about it. Um, and I do sometimes, but not as much as I'd like to because there's a whole rich history here of how this language policy affects the languages of non-Han people, of, of indigenous non-Han mm -hmm. people um, who live today in the PRC. Um, I also, let me start with talking about Fang Yen and then I'll, and then I'll move into that question. Um, so uh, when, um, when I, I did a lot, I did a few oral histories with linguists who were really active in the 50s and 60s uh, when I was writing this book. And a lot of them would say very similar things to me that like, yeah, you know, like this is, this is like, Fangyan are eventually going to disappear. It's just going to happen, right? We don't, it's not going to be all of them. It's not going to be at the same time. Um, but eventually, and they would usually credit urbanization. That would be sort of the thing that they would be like, you know, a long time ago in this area, there were all these different Fangyan, but now most people just speak these one or two Fangyan um, because everyone's moving to these cities, right? Um, or like I did some um, work in the city of Qingdao um, and I, I talked with a linguist there and, and he said to me, he's like, people who speak like pure Qingdao Fangyan grew up in the 50s and 60s. And once they all started learning Mandarin, we have this sort of like half Qingdao Fangyan, half Mandarin language that most people speak. And so like younger people just don't speak pure Qingdao Fangyan anymore. Um, and so mm -hmm. there is a resignation, I think, um, that's quite common with a lot of the people that I talk to, that this is just reality, right? That that's, that's just what's, right. that's what's going to happen. And um, I, I think all the time about a, an anthropologist whose work I really respect, who works on Tibetan languages, right? And, and he, his name is Gerald Roche. Um, and he talks about how languages don't just die, they are let to die, right? Like these are, these mm. are choices that we make, right? We choose, to, um, we choose to invest or we choose not to invest in the perpetuation um, and a future where we can be you know, sort of plurilingual or we choose not to do that. Um, and I'll, I'll give sort of one really interesting example. Um, so it was a few months ago. Um, there's um, there's an app that uh, called Douyin that that is essentially like TikTok, um, and there were a, a few sort of Douyin um, content creators who did stuff in Cantonese, and they started getting warnings that they needed to to to, to speak in Mandarin. Um, and when asked about this, they're like, No, 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 no! Like we're not censoring Cantonese. We just don't have enough censors. Um, to, 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 to official, to basically to, to check content here. Um, and that's right. why, and we're working on it. Right. But like, that's a choice. It's a choice to not mm -hmm. have a multilingual board of, of censors, right? That, that's a, that's a choice mm -hmm. of investment. Um, and if the, if the focus was just on content and not on reinforcing a linguistic hierarchy, you could make different choices. Right. Um, right. so, um, and, and. The reason I bring this up is because actually, so I talk about a lot of policies in in my book of like sort of like various agencies being given various directives to do these things. The first actual law, like like law with with enforcement teeth and such, uh, for language was made in two thousand one, um, and it very explicitly says sort of where um, 
what role Fangyan and and languages of um, indigenous people, they would be called ethnic minorities, I think in Chinese, like Tibetans and, and Mongols and, and such, mm -hmm. um, sort of what role their languages are allowed to play um, in society. And Fangyan is actually giving, given a smaller birth. Um, it's like when you have, use them when you have to, when like communication requires it, um, or for heritage or academic purposes. Um, those, those are basically the ways that you're allowed to use Fangyan. Um, whereas ethnic minority languages or indigenous languages, those are, um, those are actually like guaranteed the right to, you're, you're, there's a guaranteed right to learn them in schools. Um, but as you point out, even though that right is there in this law, um, and, and, um, it is, um, very much sort of up to question of, of how much that's actually protected. Um, because uh, increasingly, like the the space and areas and way, like basically they're like, you have a right to learn your language. You don't have a right to dictate how. You don't have a right to dictate mm -hmm. um, how often you can learn it. And you don't have a right to dictate that you will not be sort of discriminated against economically or educationally if that's the language that you choose to speak, right? Um, and so uh, as far as sort of like comparing Fangyan to ethnic minority languages, I find that on the one hand, Fangyan are given often less sort of like institutional structures, right? But mm. they benefit from being languages spoken by the ethnic majority, which means that they also tend to get a lot less crackdown. Right, like for instance, like this this content creator for Douyin was told he needed to start speaking in Mandarin. He's not getting arrested like these protesters in Mongolia who are asking for more educational, you know, sort of like 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 support for learning Mongolian. Um, and if we look at what's happening in Xinjiang um, and what's what's happening um, to to um, Uyghurs in China, right? Like they like a big part of the internment camp, as far as we know, anyway. Um, the way that the uh, these um, internment camps um, function is forcing people to learn Mandarin, right? Um, and mm -hmm. the, we don't have that kind of, um, I guess you could say, what's the word I'm looking for? Like oppression, I think, um, in right. with with Fangyan. And I think it's because um, the state often sees ethnic my, or ethnic minorities or indigenous peoples as more of a sort of existential threat than Fangyan speakers. Mm. Um, and so there's, I think there's a different kind of accommodation. Um, that said, uh, there's a lot of great research coming out on the history here. Um, I mentioned one scholar, Gerald Roche, and there's some really good stuff on, on Mongolia as well um, and, and, and Uyghur language that, that is a little outside my area of expertise. But sort of superficially, I think that that is the way that I would characterize that, that difference. Right. Yeah. I mean, do you have time for one more? Sure. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, just that, that just got me thinking about because you know, what you're saying there is that there's this existential threat, or at least this perceived existential threat that comes from these non-Han minorities. Yeah. But but that also highlights to me how the very idea of Han itself is so constructed. Yes. Right? Yes. Um, so, you know, there's almost this weird thing where you're Han because because you share a language and you share a language, therefore you're Han. Is it that, that maybe? Yeah. Yeah. The way it's, it's thought about? Absolutely. And that obviously, Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. That has huge implications for. Um, I know you've written about this, and this is why I want to ask this. This has huge implications for the issue of Hong Kong, yeah. right? Where you have a, a, this population that 
you know, is quote-unquote ethnically Han, therefore a part of the quote-unquote the nation. Yeah. But as, as you've written about in some of your, your, your public writing, that's not necessarily how the locals are going to see, are, are, are seeing this issue. So can you just maybe take us out and, and maybe talk about that, that issue a little bit? Absolutely, yeah. So at Hong Kong to me is where the politicization of this hierarchy between language and Fang Yen becomes um, really explicit. Um, and it's because yeah. it, it comes from this question sort of of, of political power. So um, like since, um, well, for a long time, Hong Kongers have a long, long, robust history of protest. But there was a big movement um, in 2019 um, to push for, um, like they, they had specific demands um, that had to do with an extradition bill to China. Um, but more broadly, this protest movement that lasted for months uh, was focused on Hong Kong political um, and cultural autonomy from the mainland. Um, and you had, I think, what some people would call the birth of a, like a Hong Kong nationalism um, that came, that, that, that um, emerged out of this movement and maybe even before it. Um, but I think that a lot of Hong Kongers really were fighting for the right to be Chinese in a way that was not defined by the PRC. Um, and Mandarin to them was a explicitly political Chinese language. Um, it is it's something that, that, that was defined by the state um, and by the PRC, as opposed to sort of a cultural China um, that they did see themselves as a part of, right? And so there was a, there's a push here to be Chinese in a multitude of ways. And, and this is, again, one of the reasons that I think we need to take China as method here, um, because I don't think that there are a lot of easy corollaries um, around right. the world of, of people who are fighting to have multiple different languages recognized as as representative of a of a singular sort of like ethnic identity um, and there's an, an entire field of scholarship about whether we should even call han an ethnic identity and 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 such and and um which is a fascinating topic but i think um we've already <laughs> talked a lot today um <laughs> But if we are to sort of take seriously um, a lot of claims that it is an ethnic identity, um, then there are a lot of people who are arguing that like, well, that doesn't have to be defined through a singular language. Um, and, and Hong Kong shows us that really clearly, right? That, that it's like, we, we want to be, we, we're, like our ethnicity is Chinese, but our like representative language is not Mandarin. It's just not, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that that, um, and that that then stems into this political movement of looking for political and cultural autonomy from a government that is seeking to say that, like, really, there's only one way you can be Chinese. Thank you so much, Gina. This has been a fascinating talk. Uh, had a lot of fun and uh, appreciate you being on with us. This was so much fun. Thanks so much for the great conversation. Thank you, Gina. I have no reason to run. I see no reason Are you with me now? Are, are you with me now? That I mentioned to Gina off air, uh, and 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 you were part of that conversation as well, Josh. And I wanna I wanna come back to now for our audience is uh, just how uh, much I think her book deserves, you know, the widest possible audience uh, of, of readers. That is, it is a book clearly, you know, dedicated to a conversation about modern China, which should be of interest, you know, to, to anyone who, uh, 
sees China, you know, in the in the sort of global sphere as, you know, as as a central player in in you know, in, the, in the world where we live. But you know, even if necessarily, you know, maybe Chinese history isn't isn't your first you know thought uh, when you're you know browsing at Barnes and Noble or something. Nevertheless, it should be uh, because, uh, particularly in this case, because. What she's really talking about, you know, beyond the, the contextual, you know, con contextually specific place and time of China in the modern age is 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 all of the modern age. You know, that, that this is a subject, in other words, the subject of language and defining, you know, mother tongues and, and orthodoxies mm -hmm. and, and dialects and this whole fantastic thing she does. This is a subject that sits right at the center of modernity's very busy intersection. By that I mean, you got culture, language, government, you got power and empire, uh, and the mythologies and histories those things create. Heck, you even got uh, you know uh, Chinese hip hop artists in there, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. uh, in other words, you, you have in effect all the elements that go into you know this Pandora's box of a conversation called authenticity what mm. who are we really what really is authentic you know um and so i think it offers gina's book does a kind of diagnosis you know of of modernity and all its you know mm -hmm. mind bendingly orwellian you know, de delusional sense of who we really are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, yeah, there, there's just there, there's so much there. It's it's so rich um, and and useful. And, and this is increasingly how I think about you know these books we read and these these scholars we we talk to is is you know no matter what the field is, how is it useful? How does it help us better understand you know who we are and not who they want us to think we are, but who <laughs> we are? And by we, I mean humans. Right, what we are as, as as humans, because we talked about this a little bit in, in the interview. But to me, the defining element of modernity is is this desire to bound things. Right? Mm -hmm. We talked about the bounding of knowledge, these taxonomies, these kind of organizational categories of knowledge, but also the nation itself is is a, you know a set of boundaries, both physical in the sense that it creates borders, but but also boundaries in terms of. Of, of, of identity, right? You are this, therefore you are not that. You are here, therefore you are not there. But when you start actually looking at the world outside, you know, those, those concepts, those assumptions of modernity, what should appear clear, I think, is how fluid humanity actually is, how um, uh, unwilling we so often are to, to fit within those, those boundaries, right? Whether that's culture, or we can see that through migration, or we can see that through this kind of mixture of, of ideas and, and creativity. Language. The fluidity is language, absolutely, yes. Thank you, thank you. That's, that's the good one, right? Um, you know, that, that fluidity is, I think, what we need to be focused on. And, and it's really a big part of, of the entire project of this podcast is to open up that fluidity. We call this, uh, you know, um, a history without borders, um, because the more we put those borders on, and again, whether that's with, with knowledge or literal uh, borders, um, the more we uh, allow ourselves to have history, you know, arbitrated to us as opposed to seeing history as it as it actually was, which is this living, breathing, changing, 
fluid uh, uh, study. And ultimately, by, by doing that and, you know, in, in our own lives, um, in the way we see the world, in the way we see our, our communities, um, in the way we see history, um, we're going to get better stories. We're going to get a better version of the past. We're going to get a better, hopefully, imagining of the future as well. You know what? I love that. And I'm going to, we started this podcast with the story of one text message. And I think we can uh, finish it now with the story of another text message that you sent to me, uh, my friend, uh, a musical message in this case that perfectly exemplifies everything you're suggesting, you know, about that more dynamic, fluid, integrative human experience. And it concerns uh, a musician in a modern nation of West Central or West Africa, rather, uh, the nation of Angier. And the musician's name is Amdou Mokhtar. He's uh, of the, the Touareg uh, tradition of West Africa. And he is uh, an extraordinary uh, guitarist and a player whose new uh, album now is even available. And, and, and this will be a different episode. What happens <laughs> when you get on iTunes, right? Called Afrique yeah. Victime. So uh, with, with a hearty uh, endorsement and recommendation uh, for all our listeners, if you would like to hear the musical embodiment of the, uh, I guess, the sentiments uh, that you were just, uh, you know, so uh, uh, articulate about, listen, uh, listen to some of what this, uh, this Touareg musician has got going on. Yeah, and maybe we can, well, I'll take you out with a little bit of Perfect. Do, Mokhtar. I was hoping you'd uh, say that. <laughs> this has been episode 44. We had a great time talking with Gina, and we always have a great time talking with you. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Bye.